0: Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Louis Fishman. He's an associate professor of history at Brooklyn College. Louis, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed with us and also for correcting me because I always thought that your name was Louis but it is Louie, so I I really look forward to listening to your story. Um, I know we talked a little bit before we started recording, so maybe we'll fill in the audience now with the questions. So my first question, maybe, could you tell us a little bit more about your work, your research, and how did you get to do that type of research? How did your personal story, kind of what journey led you to study what you're studying right now?
1: So um, thanks so much for um, having me, it's a, it's a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure also to chat before, and we will hopefully fill in the, the audience with some some more um, points about that later on. So my book, Jews and Palestinians in the late Ottoman era, 1908-1914, Claiming the Homeland, really is a culmination of years of work that I started Probably during my my PhD studies, of course, it's based off my dissertation. But I'm not a really traditional academic in the sense that I also took a break between dissertation and publishing. So uh, let me even start that. You know, I did my uh, BA at Haifa University, and I was always interested in going into the conflict to understand the conflict. Now, when I went for, so I did Middle East studies, I was, you know, we had a great uh, group of uh, scholars there. Now, in retrospect, mostly men, I have to say, um, less women. And thankfully, the field is, is filled with many more women today than they used to be. So I'm only on name uh, men right now. But I had uh, Professor Ilan Papi I worked with as an undergrad. And then I had uh, David Kushner on the Ottoman Empire. And I had Mahmoud Yazbak on Islamic cities, different things like that. We had a really, really good, I think, base, you know, education there. Um, I also did, uh, I was doing a double degree, and then I switched to, um, what was it called? It was called General BA Studies, where I did Israeli law a bit, and I worked on um, the occupied territories. And I did, finally, my, my final paper, where my final papers on Jerusalem between two occupations, the Jordanian occupation, occupation or 60. I was really involved also as an activist. So my activism really was what I think pushed me towards, I'm not sure if my interest pushed me towards activism or activism, but it would probably be activism pushed me more towards, you know, studying the conflict, right, and how we define that today. I don't think if we can get to that later. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey because at the same time that I was studying, um, you know, Middle East or what it was called the land of Israel, right, they don't, they didn't have a, a real place where you could study Philistine, right, Palestine, right, in, in, in the Israeli schools. Today, the situation is, is a lot different, it's much better, but still, there's still that where does Palestine go into the, into the, the greater picture, where do you put that in so I was really interested in that. And I think I worked, um, just to, to fill you in a bit, I was a communal organizer for Newt Sadaka in those years where I worked with Palestinian citizens of the state, and Jewish citizens on uh, coexistence. And we can later on maybe talk more about that, the, the good points and the disappointing parts. Uh, you know, Also, the whole coexistence business in itself is, is it, can it can be problematic. But let me stay on point here. So then I went to, uh, when I was finishing my degree, I also worked for a year in uh, Bethe Geffen, um, also in similar programs. And really, I think it was in those years the 90s that they said, well, if you want to do your BA, you have to go to your MA and PhD, it's best to go to the United States. And I was originally from the US. I I immigrated in my teen years, my late teen years to, to Israel. It was sort of strange going back to the US, because I really wasn't going back, I was going to the University of Chicago. And from those years on, um, I've been obsessively going back and forth from the different places I, I live in. Um, I had imagined that I would be one working day, working, you know, at a university in the land or, you know, Israel, Palestine, you know, um, whether it was Haifa, Tel Aviv, what whatever, I imagined that would be the place that I, I would go to. but. Uh, life takes its turns. And when I went to Chicago, I uh, started studying with Rashid Khalidi, which is an uh, absolutely brilliant advisor to have. And I did a whole year class on the Quran with, um, you know, it's a Near Eastern language civilizations. So it was NILK. So we had to do not just modern, but we could choose a different field, like Islamic studies, which I've done very little with it since then. But I had the pleasure of doing a whole year class with Mudad uh, Al Qadi. Reading the Quran for the year, and reading biographical dictionaries, really strengthened my Arabic very much so in those years. And it became a very much live language. Actually, um, it was live with my friends in, at Haifa University, but it was never really alive in the university, right? And finally, I had a professor named Hassan Kayala, who was quite interesting. And I said, wow, he's doing late Ottoman history, history of Ottomans and Arabs and that whole, the, so that the Arab country Syria. And I decided to do a paper called Ottomanism Science. And that led to eventually me going to Istanbul to study Turkish in 1998, and suddenly saying, I want to go back to the Ottoman film. And when I did the Ottoman film, that would mean I would have to start studying the Ottoman language, Turkish, and end up in the, in the archive. So we can come back to my, sort of my, my second life with, I have with Turkey. But when I ended up coming back to the States, just two years later, I got a job at Bilkent University in Ankara. My partner then also had a job there. And that was a place where my daughter was born also. in 2000 in Ankara. So that really connected my sort of place in Turkey. And personally also, right? Personally also was that became very important and that's when I started writing my dissertation um it's very late I mean in Chicago you had to do four years of coursework you had to do your proposal and then you had to do the work and I finished in 2007 which is normal for Chicago just don't start counting years it's quite normal but by then I had already um, made one of the best mistakes ever is uh, I got a small place uh, in Istanbul and that sort of became my main address until today almost where it's it's the it's, it's my magnet where I always go back to and I go back every couple of years 2007 really quickly I started uh at Brooklyn College um but I just told you I really wanted to be over there and for me over there meant you know whether that's in Istanbul or whether that's in Tel Aviv Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. I I see it almost, you know, I'm doing late Ottoman studies and that was once one territory and it's only an hour and a half flight. So it's from New York to Atlanta, the same distance from Tel Aviv to to Istanbul. And if you look at the Southern areas of Turkey, they're much closer to Tel Aviv than they are to Istanbul. You know, know, we have these constructed borders that were placed there that that, that don't make it so easy. So in 2012, I actually almost leave academia, I take a year off. I wanted to be closer to my daughter than different things. Um, and I ended up working three, a whole year in Istanbul. We can come back to that. And then I said, you know what, I have to give this spoken If I'm going, I came back to Brooklyn, and I can not be going back and forth. I kept getting grants and different things and not finishing. You know, give me a year in Istanbul to do research. Well, you've been in Istanbul before, Istanbul. It's a little hard to do research in Istanbul because it's such a cool city and fun city. You meet people and you're always there's always an adventure to do something. So finally I buckled down in 2013 and my book, Jews and Palestinians, Late Ottoman Era, came out. And yeah, that's sort of how I got to got to that. And I, I'm very, very happy that I stuck with it. And maybe you can have a few questions about my book, because that's what you asked me about. But I ended up telling you, filling you in on my life to get to the point of what the book is about. If you want to ask that now, I can
0: yeah absolutely could you tell us more about the book um why how do you think history especially the history under the ottomans could help us understand what's happening today right
1: yeah i recently you know you know once a a book comes out as historians academics imagine people that write novels have similar things you start understanding your work once sort of sits there and and especially during COVID, I've been lucky to do it. It came out like two months before COVID. I, I had my book party, February 29th, March 13th, we were sent home and I was like, thank God I had one book talk at NYU, live book talk. And I just had my second one last month in Binghamton, which was nice, I get to see real people, but I did a lot of Zoom talks. But I think the, the contribution, what, you know, my work, you know, how it contributes to the narrative is that it was odd I mean, and very important, not both Palestinians and Jews never could foresee the fall of the Ottoman Empire, especially the ones that are in Palestine, Ottoman Palestine, Osmal and Palestine. They, or Eretz Israel, you know, each one already by them is very divided, you know, divided on the way they define the land. Interestingly enough, it's in these years I argue that the Palestinians Due to their frustrations with the Ottoman administration, due to the fear that actually Jews are coming in larger numbers and posing a threat to their own existence, start to develop that local patriot, local patriotism that they have transforms into a Palestinian identity. But this is not a Palestinian nation-state national. This is an identity, this is, and this is really working off of. Uh, Rashid Khalidi's work, Palestine Identity. But I give a lot more. I give different examples that I found in the Ottoman archives. So this can be peasants writing petitions in a saying, you know, this is our land and we're being removed from it. I can look at the Haram al incident of 1911, which I coined and later I found it in the newspaper, Hadith al Haram shrif And it really looks like an archeological dig that happens. It's sort of an Indiana Jones. And there's there's a great uh, article that just came out by Olivia Parker in the New York Times just now. And she, it's her great-grandfather, or excuse me, her great-great-uncle that was in charge of the the archeological dig. And it's an Indiana Jones stories. And four books have come out this year alone on that topic. So I was one of the first people who started grappling with this, because I found this huge document, dossier of over 150 pages on this archeological dig. And I asked myself, I said, wait a minute, if this is one of the greatest, biggest scandals in late Ottoman Palestine, and no one in the history, field of history knows about it, what does this mean? So this is archeological dig, they get a contract from the Ottomans, they dig there and they dig within the Temple Mount, and they're looking for Solomon's treasure. And once news breaks of it, there's actually riots that break out in Jerusalem. And the Ottomans are afraid that they might have to send more troops. They actually sent troops to calm the fears down. And already they've been talking about the, the local families, the three families, the Khalidi Hussein, and Husseini uh, and the Shibi families. And the local notables are getting more and more courage to speak up. So they, they understand that that could prove a challenge in, in the future. So at this moment, we have something that connects all Palestinians of the land as what I call first tier defenders of the land. While the other surrounding Arab lands, Syria, uh, Egypt, especially are second defenders. And then you have the Islamic world at, at large that um, people from India um, Muslims in India were very worried about this, archaeological. Um, and wrote about it. And the Brit- British were frankly afraid that, you know, what's happening in Palestine can affect them and also in, in India. So I tried to, I tried to look at this idea of different. Opinions. So that's one issue That's is why I look, what I call Palestinianism. And I said, but what is, you know, we have all these acts of, of patriotism, but what do we call them before A nationalism? And I say Palestinianism. And there's a book by uh, Carol Hakim on Lebanon, Lebanism. And that's why I say, you know, we've been stuck constantly on this idea of what were the Palestinians and was there Palestinian people before the British occupation? And unfortunately, because the Arab narrative of southern Syria is so strong, we do not see that term, Surah Al Either in the literature. So I bring uh, examples, for example, I bring a picture of Tuburg beer, the beer commercial in the newspaper Philistine. And it says, if you want to get this beer, and it, besides the fact that it's very interesting, right, that it's written on the same page at uh, Raghavir Khalidi, the Imam is writing about religious stuff, you know, today it would be very odd to see this in, in a newspaper. But you say, if you want to get it, go to your local uh, distributor, Fi wa Wafi Surya. Okay? So for them, this is not a huge question. They understand where Palestine is. The interesting thing is they start to find themselves as Shaba Palestine, Ahad Palestine, Rijal Palestine, right? You see you more and more, it proliferates during this era. And it has a lot to do with the Zionism and the fact that they were arguing in the parliament, you know, against Jewish immigration, in the parliament. So it was an Ottoman issue. Now, on the flip side, the Jewish community, that narrative develops very different than we know from the original Israeli narrative. And I really, my next article is gonna be looking at both these narratives and say, wait a minute, have we gotten it all wrong? You know, the obsession with the first and the second Aliyah, especially the second Aliyah, I'm starting to argue that perhaps it's been gurion and his friends in 1930s writes themselves into the narrative of the history and because what I see is a Jewish issue that what I call a hodgepodge communities Svardek Arabic speaking Ladino speaking Yiddish speaking Persian speaking different languages all uniting under Hebrew okay so we know by 1908 1914 we have three dailies we have hachirut we have hachirut we have Tsvi. We have Moria, which it's more of a, a the Haradi or the Hasidic newspaper, okay, leaning towards religious Ashkenazi. But the way they see Palestinians, whether they're Arab speaking Jews, whether they're Ashkenazi is very similar. And the way that they say, we all need to unite together under Hebrew. We need to look at how we can obtain this through adopting Ottoman citizenship. So I look at their children of the first Aliyah, for example, that are fighting in the wars in Turkey and on, in, in, in the Ottoman lands. So I look at the son of Aron Eisenberg, who's the founder of Rehobo. His son fought in Chernakalei, not Çanakale, in Torum in, in the Balkan Wars. And he falls POW in World War I. And he dies as a POW, teaching Hebrew in POW camps to other Jews. So what I'm saying is that even if we look at 1912, 1913, 1914, people can't foresee the fall of the empire, at least the ones that are there. So if we start at that point, we're going to understand that it was quite a different situation. Jews are opting for integrating the Ottoman system to get autonomy. And Arabs start realizing, wait a minute, not just Palestinians, we need to demand more rights. So it's the Zionist movement that says, look at the Arabs. They're getting right. Let's learn, let's learn about our nationalism from whom? From Arabs. You know, the whole narrative is Palestinians didn't know what nationalism is, and the Jews taught them nationalism, right? And they use that. If, if you know the Jewish community would not have been there, maybe they wouldn't have been this Palestinian nationalism, it should be Syrian or something like that. Opposite. It's opposite. People are looking they're saying, how are they succeeding in? moving their ideas forward in the it. And the only really interesting thing about David Gurion is that he's wise enough to go to Istanbul. He comes to Israel, immigrates, excuse me. Well, if I was my student right now, I would fail my student on that, right? He comes to Eretz Israel, he comes to Palestine, Eretz Israel, Palestine. And within years, he says, you know what, I have to go to, I have to, go to Istanbul because he, I mean, in this sense, eh, we say in Hebrew, right? That he understands already, right, he's a very intelligent. He understands that if I want to be anything, I have to get a law degree. Ah, uh, why maybe to run for parliament one day and to represent Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament? Because we only have Arab representatives. We have uh Ruhir we have Said al-Husseini, we have someone from Jaffa Nakka also. Right? So that instance, but so I'll end by saying that every Israeli Jewish student, at least. Almost sometime in their school years, they'll hear about Ben Gryon, and they'll see him in a little tarbush, and they'll say, or fez, and they'll say, oh, he was in Istanbul, and they all laugh and say, oh, that's so cute, oh, that's so cute. But they don't do anything with it. You understand what I'm saying? They don't ask why was he there. Because if you ask why he was there, and you ask what they were all doing in Istanbul, then that changes the narrative. That Zionism in itself really forfeited the idea of an independent state. They didn't think that was within their reach. And I think that is something really, really transformative thing. So everything that happens after the pitch occupation transforms the whole conflict to something new. And I'll I'll keep on saying, I will end that that's when it turns violent. Remember, that's the last time Palestinians are going to be represented in parliament as an equal factor to other communities. That's the last time, 1914, it's not gonna come back. And I think that in itself, you know, speaks volumes, right? Why we should go back to the Ottoman period and start rethink it, relearn it, and, and one day teach it to new generations.
0: Thank you, that was actually very, uh, very, very interesting. That brings me. You have actually a question that is related to the Palestinian identity. So you said you were not, didn't use Palestinian nationalism, you used Palestinianism, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I kept thinking, you know, as a, as a Palestinian Israeli, it's always there's this debate oh, how can you be Palestinian and Israeli at the same time? I mean, can you be Palestinian and a full citizen with rights and ask for like equal rights, right? these things the debate and like extremist communities in israel Mm -hmm. even among politicians and we i don't know if you saw the video of i forget the name of the reporter who said arabs forgot what Nakba is we need to like remind them what that is oh yeah exactly
1: yeah exactly
0: I was thinking how can that determination palestinianism versus palestinian nationalism help us understand the complexity of the palestinian identity or identification of people within israel
1: You know, I like how you use the word identification. I have a a small little, I was using identity more and then I had a friend that said, suggested maybe you should look at this article on identification. There really are, you know, and the idea that you can identify. I mean, it's more of a political science-based argument. I believe, Um, I forget who it was, but I applied that in my book. I use that, you know. I think the idea of the Palestinianism Really comes from my knowledge first when I was saying Hebrew, I would Palestinian youth, right? Israeli youth, Palestinian youth, or in in Turkish, lilik. We add these, like, these these endings that just means the essence of being right, the essence of being Palestinian, the essence of being Jewish, and in a way, it's it's an easy way out of explaining ourselves because it just means oh, I'm talking about Palestinian, Right? So that's sort of when I kept, I, I kept coming to the same question that when I explained it in other languages, I could say it quite easily, but when I, when I say it in English, I'm always stuck at, is it identity, is it national? I think your question is super in place, and I really think we need to, uh, we could apply that to what's happening even today. Palestinians are currently without state and they have, they've never been you know, independent as a, as a state as we know. Yet their palestinian or what I call Palestinianism, is very much alive. And that's not going to disappear. If people think that it's going to transform at some time, and we know it transformed you know, from sort of a secular, I didn't. If we look at politics, right? You know better than I about Islamist movements, but you know Hamas is inherently Palestinian still. You know where they put where they put that in terms of their identification and the complications of 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 of, you know different things. And the same with I'm I'm looking more at political party identities, or secular Palestinian identity. Is that that's going to transform? But there's there's no place in the future where you can pull that Palestinian-ness outside of that, you know, of the hearts of, of Palestinian people. Right? There, you know, we can all talk really big about academics, but Palestinians feel Palestinian. And some people um, trying to, you know, I, I know quite a few people that that still argue, you read all these political science or these surveys or these uh of Palestinians feel also Israeli, or 60% feel this, or 80% still. It doesn't that that all misses the point. You know, it really misses the point because how do we how do we put this on a bar and check, you know, what do you feel, or how do you identify And that transforms to who you're speaking with. Everyone transforms and who's they're speaking with, who's giving, I'm talking about polls mostly, right? The polls, right? You know, so. Recently I was shared a poll and it said 90% are would rather be under Israeli control in Jerusalem than Palestine or than anything else. Well, what's anything else? You know what I mean? You, you think they're gonna whatever the whatever this, I don't believe the statistics, but whatever it is, let's say, but whatever it is, I I my answer was, well, you think they wanna be under checkpoints and you know, under that system? You know, it depends on who you're asking, why you're asking, and who's doing the asking. Right. So let's, let's put that aside. I think this idea of Palestinianism, idea of this inherent patriotism to the land, that al uh, watan, which we learn in you know, Middle East, ish Middle East, when the first classes, you learn al watan patriotism, right, to that love of the land. And I see that all over the documents. And I see that regardless of what era you're writing, it. you know, I mean, I'm reading it. So 1908, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing the you know over and over the word Alpen, right? Our homeland. What uh, Watan. We have a uh, Palestinian poetry in the Palestinian papers in Philistine in 1914. I, I opened my you know my book up with, with this. So yeah I, I think it's I think it's important, especially looking at Palestinian citizens, you know, because you're you're almost damned if you do damned if you don't in this issue, right? And I really accept the fact that everyone can claim their own identity and that doesn't that doesn't upset me if it goes against what I write or whatever everyone you know I, I don't want to even go into this, but you know you have some Palestinian citizen states Israelis there Palestinian Israelis you know who are very much with the establishment of the state the, that state establishment I'm not going to name names, but you could be a single hair or report their hair or something like that. That doesn't interest me. You know, please live your life how you want to. Everyone is live their life how they want. To. I'm not putting anyone to there, that's there. But overall, I think it's safe to say that, you know, even if you take that name out, that love of the land is there. That love of being there in your land. It doesn't matter if it's Israel or Palestine or, or wherever. That, that, that's there. And I think we need to come up with terms to suit this and move on. So it's sort of that you brought us to this whole debate. Do I talk about the Ottoman period. Well, what are they then? Well, who are they then? You know, every every people, every people are always. When we talk about, I'll give you an example. When we talk about Egyptian history, and we write Egyptian peasants, no one's gonna say, "Oh, well, they didn't define themselves as Egyptian. Then how can you call them Egyptian peasants?" Okay. Syrian Syrian peasants, no problem. The minute you write Palestinian peasants in the, in the pre-British era, or even in the 30s or 40s, someone's gonna say, wait a minute, did they define themselves as Palestinian? <laughs> you know, you, you understand? So it's this sort of double standard, this constant double standard when you're talking about Palestinians, that a word like Palestinianism, yeah, I would argue for it. I would argue for it. And, and, and let's move on for that. It's very simplistic in arguments. That really get us nowhere. So I, I, I tend not to even enter conversations now about, you know, where they such thing as Palestine before. You know, we have enough documents. The newspaper is called Palestine in the Ottoman era, and still you have people saying that well, there's no sense of Palestinian patriotism. The newspaper is Palestine, people. You know, what do you want? But anyways, that's uh, very, very very political, as we know.
0: This reminded me of. I can't remember which politician, Israeli politician, made the argument in the Knesset that there is no Palestine because there is no pe in Arabic.
1: I had someone write to me this about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> 10 minutes ago. I can't give you more information about the student. It's someone that I don't have many trolls in my life. <laughs> most get really tired. There's someone that constantly writes to me and, 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 and someone just he's obsessed, I don't know. And he wrote me that there's no P in Arabic, so how can there be Palestinians? Literally, someone just wrote me that. It's, 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 and, and you're right, an Israeli politician, not just one Israeli politician, you hear it over and over again. There's no Palestinians because there's no P. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying in wallah <laughs> like, please, please, let's not go there. So I, I try not to, I, I try not to I argue, but these are usually, I see more and more, and the good thing is, I see more and more students Accepting the Nakba, recognizing, you know, uh, that Palestinian existence. I'm talking, I'm talking among different uh, populations, so I think that we 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 have moved forward, and it, and it it's best not to waste our time um, mm-hmm. with with some of these people.
0: This brings me to questions. I'm going to move us away a little bit from the scholarship to teaching. Yes, please. Know, um, maybe a general question to you. Do you think that scholarship, research and teaching is a form of peace activism, is a form of uh, kind of moving the debate forward if you can say that, I guess.
1: I think the younger, the older I get, the less I believe that's true. I think, you know, there's some things I'm not willing to forfeit for facts. For example, you can, mm. You can do all you want. You can, you know, the denial of the denial of the, the is very much the denial of the Armenian genocide denial. And and I actually think that uh, Armenian genocide denialism that that Israelis in a way model this is sort of the model of how you deny and it, and it, and it really happens, you know, after the after the generation that suffered the crime is no longer with us, and you can really reconstruct. So in the '90s in, in, in Israel. And most people in the 80s and 90s were older, they know the 48 war, they know what happened, they say things happen, things happen, you know, that's, that's war. And then you have great scholars that come and bring it. And then you have this denial, right, that, that sets in. Um. Now, it had the second Indifada not broken out, had also succeeded, well, that probably, probably would have been taken. One of the great things that we see in this, is where it can be activism in the sense, is that and I'm talking about? Israeli, not outside, of it, right? Is when Meretz came in, in Robin's government and said, you know, we need to teach Mahmoud Darish. This is sort of part of our identity. On that same note, they also said, we need to teach Armenian genocide to show that. If I try to explain to, you know, Turkish people when we're debating this, it's weird because in Israeli, it's the left forces. It's the ones that are closest to Turkey and like loving in a way. Um, are the ones that actually want to recognize the Armenian genocide to say that, you know, Jews weren't the only ones that were persecuted in history. Other people were persecuted also. That it's very important for us to understand that we are not the eternal victim, that there's other victims in the world. So, you know, with the, the Armenian genocide, in a weird way, becomes a debate very much connected to Israeliness or Israel's existence itself while denying the nakba, right? So it's, it's, it's it's a double-edged sword here, I guess, because they are. It's, it's two sides, there's two sides of it. it's very interesting to use as a model, I think, to that. Now, yes, there's, there's differences, of course, where you teach and how you teach when you teach. So I've taught in Israeli high schools. I've given lectures in Israel to university students. Um, I've taken programs, Israeli uh, students, uh, also in Turkey one time. And then I've taught a year in a uh, couple years, in uh, three or four years off and on in Turkey. And then I've taught in in the United States, two liberal arts colleges, but I've been in Brooklyn for most most of my career here. Brooklyn College is interesting. So everywhere you're teaching, it's a different, you know, take. If you're doing this in Israel, then yes, it's very political. Anything you anything you say, and you're not willing to argue about it, and say that there's no argument that's happened. Right? The, the Nakba happened. There's no argument. You can argue about you think it should be taught this way, or you think it should be interpreted this way, or you see what I'm saying? But the fact that 700,000 Palestinians were forced out, fled on their own, forced out, and especially weren't allowed to come back, there's no argument here. This is, this is a historical fact, right? Yes, Jews died, right? It's, you know, it's not, it's not saying, you know, I saw an article today. Well, you know, today and Haaretz, I have to read it still. So, well, why aren't we talking about the Jewish victims? Well, you know, you could, you could say, well, maybe we need to shine light on this or that. But that, that's different than saying the in itself is, is something that we, we should. So it's very political if you're in. It. Now, in the U.S., I think when I'm teaching, I'm lucky that in Brooklyn, we have, Brooklyn Colleges voted year in and year out most diverse campus in America. We have sometimes 120 languages spoken every day on the campus. I have a project where I, they have to write, it says, it's shaping the modern world, general history class, and they have to, the paper is, uh, what is it called? How has the modern world shaped me, my family, my presence around? So I get fantastic narratives of Jews that once they themselves as Arab Jews, some even still don't identify them. I have we have a very large Syrian Jewish community and Lebanese Jewish community in Brooklyn. So I always have students, often that speak Arabic, and they speak Hebrew. They go to yeshivas and they speak Arabic from home, and it's just brilliant. Like where do you get? And then you get Palestinian students, and then you get, you know, other, you get students from Tibet and Poland and Ukraine and in China, right? So we we get a, a really really nice mix of students. I've never really had, you know, people always say, ah, oh, the conflict is so controversial. What do you, I'm sure you get yeah, when you, you teach, you teach Israel Palestine, they like, wow, how do you do that? How do you manage it? Oh, it must be like a war in your class. I said, no, there's, there's really, there's not a war. Everyone's allowed to, I think, speak up share. And I, you know, when I'm teaching Palestine israeli conflict next semester, I get really, really interesting stories in the paper. And I wanna make sure that there's always an outlet for someone that might feel frustrated and might feel that their narrative is not being heard, to have it heard. But just to know that you should respect other people in the room. You should be able to respect, because a lot of my students are coming from, Jewish students also, you know, Palestinians, obviously, right, you know, they're, my Palestinian students, and I've learned right? From up or from down. And are you on this side of the wall or that side of the wall? So my students, I grew up in America remember when they could visit their relatives. Now they're getting another 20 years old so they can remember that right. But my students 10 years ago could remember when that that wall was built and they no longer can see their family on the other side. They no longer have to go around. It takes them an hour to get to their family when it used to take 10 minutes to get to their family. So for them the conflict is very real. But then I have other students that you know are from Egypt, Syria and they had their own traumas that they lived and we have a large Jewish population at Brooklyn College that, you know, Brooklyn College, is not your average college population that it's still many Jewish communities, you know, that all have their own very different stories. So we have many grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, I hear, and we have many from there, we have many, sometimes we have some Hasidic Jews that, that are no longer, and they've sort of left the community and they're on their own. They just come to college. They never sat in a in a room, you know, with men and women together, and they're starting their college. And you that uneasiness, you know. So their whole history of their relation with Israel is quite different, right? So yeah, it, it depends. I mean, let me sum up that we 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 have interesting conversations, and with peace activism, I support my students to be activists, whatever whatever they do. But just to do it in a very, you know, very civil way and, uh, and allow, I'll get, I'll get straight to the heart of the point, maybe that won't help out. I, I really believe in dialogue as much as possible. Now, the dialogue on American campuses, you always have this, at least in my classes. I won't say American campus because there's a whole debate about it, is that you have to have that, that out where people are able to learn from each other and, and hopefully they'll start understanding each other. And be able to to move on from wherever that, from wherever they, whatever direction they take from there.
0: So you gave us kind of a, a positive outlook on your classes and the debates that happen. I want to delve into the challenges of teaching about Israel Palestine. Of you, even like as a Jewish Israeli American. Who is teaching about the Nakba, about Palestine, about you know occupation, inequality, injustices, etc. Have you, first of all, had challenges like on the personal level, with family, friendship, because of your, you know, your understanding of what's happening and how you articulate it, and then as a teacher, have you had challenges? I know we talked a little bit about the person who just emailed you. P. There's yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
1: The, that's not the, the normal case. That's a uh, that's a continuous issue.
0: That's <laughs> a funny one. Yeah, but, it is. Like you know, you know, even some Jewish instructors will be called anti-Semitic, even though they're Jewish, or like Jews, you know, self-hating. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that.
1: So I think, yeah. Personally, I'll 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 give you a a few examples. Personally, I don't have many problems. My my Turkey edge, you know, I did live. I do continue to visit um, Istanbul uh, regularly. I'm very open about my politics. I write. I've written for the Turkish press in the past. People know me. Last week I had a very interesting talk, and it was an open forum with uh, religious and uh, secular people they define themselves as one. some were part of uh, the original party that erdogan had belonged to saw that party and there were other people's they they, they identified themselves i didn't ask but they, they actually i believe they, they they had actually said but they, they seem to be a group of mixed liberals secular religious and you know that word zionism is a bad word in turkish it's like sunnism it's like before the questions came up, the moderator says, we've had something strange, we never have this before, but we have what might be very offensive questions toward Zionist regime, massacres in, in Gaza. Now, unfortunately, in the Turkish case, we know, and I'm one of the first ones, I write about anti the the culmination or the the coming together of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in the Ottoman period. Already in the Ottoman period, you have anti-Semitic Turkish-speaking parliamentarians promoting anti-Zionism. You have the Palestinians, familiar, saying, no, 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 that's anti-Semitism, don't bring back us. That's, That's not us. And that happens in 1911 parliament already. The Palestinians know, know Jewish people, right? They know they speak. And even Ruhi al khaled inside Husseini went briefly to Alianza They knew Hebrew, basic Hebrew also. Okay. The Palestinians and Jewish people actually know each other. But that when you go to that Turkish side and you when you have to say to them that a lot of these conspiracy theories that you're speaking about are very, very anti-Semitic. So I I hold my ground and Say what I believe, and I think it was it, it was overall like, accepted by them. But it was hard. I have to say it was very hard. It was in Turkish, went on for about three hours, and yeah. So my Turkish is not nowhere near like my other languages. Even English, but it's not bad either. So I, I kept on held my ground. I've been on TV shows there in the past about these issues. When Mavi Marmara came out, the the, the, the Gods of Lotela, I remember I was interviewed right in front of the, the ship, the day Netanyahu was forced to apologize. I think it was, I forget which president it was, it was Obama, I think, held the phone to him and said, call Erdogan and apologize. It was in 2013, I believe. So I remember being on the ship. So yeah, I, I, I have, it's times where it's uneasy. I have other times that I was at I gave recently a talk at a synagogue, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I used to give many more synagogue talks, and I might go back to it. I'm very much a, a secular person, and I don't really I'm not connected. In New York, you're really not connected to any community. So if I was in a small town, I imagine I would be. But I was there, and when and I, I, mean, I did talk about the Nakba and I did talk about you know, ethnic cleansing in 1948, I felt this sort of huge, massive wave, because you, know, you know when you teach, you see their, their faces. And I said, I have to keep going. I can't stop. I have to hold my ground. And I have to show that, that you know, I use a lot of comparisons, that it's not surprising. You have a lot of comparisons. You have the Greek-Turkish exchange. You have India-Pakistan. You have this. Now, it's different that there was no agreement there. But trauma is very traumatic things that happen to many people. So yeah, I think in those cases where, you know, you're sitting in a room of older people and you don't want to break their world. They like you a lot, right? They think they're gonna hear one thing and then they hear something completely different. It was three lectures I gave. And I think for them, I think that's sometimes the first time that they hear these things. And I think it's, it's hard for them. I think it's really, really difficult to be raised on certain ideas and to have a professor. You know, I, I had a case that it, it made me sad, for example, at, in the May events that happened last May, I wrote an article Basically, and it and it's, it's said how leading being a civil war. And of course, editors, they choose often the, the, the titles. But when I read the title, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm saying. Six hours later, there's fighting. May, I think for all of us, was a terrible, terrible month. Because we saw what, how bad the conflict can become. We found how personal it is. It really is personal in these small communities in Ramleh or Lidda that I argue that it has, has, a lot of times, small territorial issues over neighborhoods. And that moment, that's a fear. That's, that's our greatest fear, what happened in me. Because we see it like people living together, and you know, the politics aside, they love each other, they're nice. But that moment where they get that chance, reminds me of, you know, Seeing West Beirut, the movie West Beirut, where suddenly you know friends living together suddenly become enemies and they start taking other grudges out on their neighbor because they can use that at that moment. It comes down this nationalism comes down this really ugly violence and force. So when I during that whole month, I had a student write me an email and said, I really felt a Jewish student, I really felt that you were so. Talking about the Palestinian side, that you forgot the suffering. Now I tell them that I didn't forget the suffering. I don't forget the suffering. When I teach, I don't talk about my army service at all. But I did serve in the army in Israel, and I do it as a disclaimer. Even I shared it with you before. I don't. I only do it as a disclaimer that don't forget that I am part of this conflict. I have my own ideas. I try to bring a get sort of set a, a a space that everyone speak, but I am part of the conflict in that sense, inherent part of the conflict, right? I also immigrate. Okay. So so I realized these limitations. But when she wrote me this, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like, it's sort of like, it sort of, it hurt in a way that that I didn't allow her that space, that she felt worried that she was, unfortunately, people sometimes in New York City, even with kippahs, were getting yelled at and other Jewish groups who are being wrongly attacked because, you know, which we we, we see this, you know, we see that in Turkey, sometimes small groups will go throw rocks at a synagogue. It doesn't happen in huge numbers, but it's enough that it happens, that you understand that people, yes, people get the two confused. And when she wrote me this email, so yeah, it does hurt personal. It, it it is very personal. It is very personal. You know, um, a Palestinian student will, Palestinian students often come and share with me their everyday frustrations in life so yeah it is it's very very personal right I have it once I once my students graduate they become my friends so you don't think that it hurts me when one of my Palestinian friends from here says I want to go to Israel and you say yeah but I don't want him to suffer checkpoints I don't want him to see all this i want to protect the student you know you see what i'm saying but i can't say that to them i say you have to go and you have to see it you have to but that whole world of theirs you know shatters in a way because a lot of them i think are really interested in 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 israel itself they don't know what it is right if you're growing up here you don't know what you don't know what that huge successful little island there that's occupying you you know that depends on where you grew up, which neighborhood, who your friends are. So you also have your own, you have to go and see it. So yeah, that as a a professor that, you know, it really hurt, teaching May was very hard.
0: Thank you. Um, Which brings me to my last question. Let's say, I mean, we didn't talk about your activism with, you talked about Ra'ut, Sadaqa, which would be interesting maybe to touch on a little bit. Let's say, um, you met your younger self, <laughs> or you can meet yes. your younger self. What kind of advice would you give yourself? Advice that others could use as well, who are just starting out working on these issues.
1: That's a, it's a it's a, a fantastic question. You know, I've because because I'm now living in sort of three places, or my heart is really in between Istanbul and Tel Aviv, in the sense that Tel Aviv is a place where I feel great but it is very much like the Upper West Side. It is a bubble, and and it's far from, you know, when I do my study abroad, for example, I bring people, my students to Haifa, Nazareth, and it was just, to be in Haifa again after going to university there, to be there, especially, you know, Haifa has a beautiful palace community spirit to it that you can actually fill. I never got to fill that in Yafa just because I, I haven't been there that enough. I never lived in, by the way, I never lived long-term in Tel Aviv itself. It's very interesting, right? It's a place I like to go, spend time there, work sometimes. But I lived in Haifa, you know, four or five years. So it really, once again, depends on the place you are. I would say that my disappointment, I did have disappointment in long-term over coexistence in the fact that there is an equality. So how, you know, and I really like my old Sadaka during those years, because we were quite in a revolutionary group. We're not going to talk about coexistence with Palestinians in in the West Bank and Gaza. That was a a very important line. They're under direct occupation. You know, so I think that was something. Now, I remember, I I, I sort of do miss the days I had mentioned to you that I have been in Mufahim. I remember Mufahim from maybe 88 or 89, 90. I don't even think you're... You, you I don't, even, I don't even know if you were alive then, but uh, we did a human chain in Wadi Ara, Shalom Akshav. and I still remember that's one of my first events that I did, and we, you can go back and find the photos, and I still have them, of all us holding police now signs, you know, in that, in that Wadi Ara, and I thought that was that to me, really reminds me of. A good example of what I would call activism now would be standing together, um, and, you know, I, sometimes I see the, I always see the mutations and everything from the academics, but on the ground, they're doing some really, really great work and there's other groups also. And, you know, it's still there and, you know, different groups, but I, I would say, is, yes, if you can connect yourself to these groups, go stand, do something but very, very important is the conflict for everyone is very, very different. And that doesn't have to suit everyone. Activism can also be a way of life where, like I say, you stand your own and you say, you speak up. If you see racism, if you see hate, you say something. And I think that's also very, very important. So it doesn't have to be going out, marching, different things. I, I have to say, uh, I'm not uh, very active in the United States sphere because I found that, that the dialogue is very, very divided here. It's very polarized at times, and I and I, I, I don't I don't have uh, energy, I don't have nerves to get into to arguments. And you know, and I and I think the more we start recognizing, I'll give you an example. You know, this this was recently talked about. You know. The over obsession of calling everyone, you know, Zionist, Zionist. No, it's Israelis. They're Israeli citizens. I'm talking about Israeli Jews, you know, know, it's the Israeli army. It's not the Zionist army. Excuse me, it's an Israeli army. It's not the Zionist army. And language like this, I think, you know, it, 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 in a sense, it it sort of blocks sort of open dialogue. So, yes, anywhere you can find dialogue, seize that moment. That's very, very important. And I, and I feel that, that sort of a missed opportunity. I'll end about the, the Israeli sphere because really when I went to Turkey, I thought Turkey was going to be somehow an easier not to crack, or, I, or you know, Istanbul is such a great city, but Turkey, I've written two articles on comparing Kurds in Turkey to Palestinians in Israel. And I think there's a lot we can learn from comparison. Once we start comparing these, we understand and, and comparing activism. So, for example, standing together looks. Although it's it's not a it's a political organization, but not a political party. We had hoped that the joint list would turn out something like the HDP in Turkey, right? I write articles. I'm 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 myself pro joint list. I vote joint. I vote joint list since 2013 when they first started. I believe was it 2015, 2013? I believe 2015, and then that's really where it's, it's similar to Turkey. It's it's when Lieberman. Ironically, raised it, right? Lieberman, he was the one suggests to block the arabs from from joining in. so so I think that itself, me, so my politics are very clear. That's why I say my 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 politics are very clear. I'm very open about that also. I write about it. I say right to what I vote for. And I, I think that, you know, bringing Jews and Arabs together wherever they're, however they are, and working out these intricacies, these I think that's that's most important because that dialogue doesn't exist often, even among groups with similar aims, you know. And I think we have a lot of groups that we all could learn from each other. I think. I think that's very very. important.
0: Okay. So another question that I wanted to ask you, I find it very interesting that you live in multiple locations. I'm honestly very jealous of how you can go back and forth between Tel Aviv, the U.S., and Istanbul because my dream is at some point in my career to be able to do that, right, to move back and forth. But I don't think I have the institutional connections just yet to be able to do that. How does that, you know, you do you did it for professional reasons, right? Uh, but also you developed a personal relationship to these places. So can you tell me a little bit about how that influenced you?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. That's, that's something really close to my heart. And, you know, often, you know, I think especially in an interview like this, we talk about academic stuff and, and we have this, sort of academics are a bit cold and we don't talk about, you know, things that we actually love to do and um, that makes us unique people. All of us end up in very strange different places because of work, I think that I've learned later that academia really is challenging because, you know, you could find yourself anywhere at a job and it's not necessarily the the place that you like. I was uh, insistent on that if I got a job in the U.S. that it would be one plane, from over there and I have to say I'm very lucky to have gotten a job at at Brooklyn because I do have these students you know from all over the world and people that are connected to the conflict. I do miss the idea that I don't have PhD students here and different things like that. I think that's sort of the next stage I would really want to develop through maybe from the CUNY Central and the the, the Middle East Department there and the um, CUNY Grad Center I was talking about. But uh, with with Istanbul and Tel Aviv, both have developed, I think, really interesting worlds. And these worlds often overlap; they connect. But they really help me understand each place better. So I think I a I consider myself, my, consider myself very very lucky that I'm able to be there. But I'm also very much affected by, by events that happen, you know, in Turkey. I've written now for the press almost over 50 articles on Turkey itself. And the whole idea was working towards Turkey was that I got sort of burned out on the conflict or when I was writing the book, I really couldn't be that connected to Israel and Palestine, right? I, that was, it was a little too close and I was trying to write my book, but then I found out that being in Turkey, that it's not easy there also They have their own conflicts they have their own divisions they're going through you know an interesting you know period of time right now um as we speak so yeah so it sort of turned in where where at times i feel that when i go to tel aviv jerusalem now in a way it's a little more break than when i go to to turkey or i go to to istanbul but i I do like i sell in by saying that i'm very lucky and uh, Istanbul is, is a, a home to me. And I'm very, very much connected to the place. And I think that really has transformed my understanding of, of, of the Palestinian conflict. If we can call that, one calling conflict, but we won't go into that.
0: Okay, well, thank you. Um, I mean, I can give you also a couple of minutes to see if you wanna add anything that we didn't cover. Can you find it positive? Um. Okay,
1: let me think. Let me think. I think that's all, basically.
0: Maybe do you recommend books or uh, people that intellectually influenced your work? Maybe a movie or a song or a book.
1: You no, know, for movie, you know, I I got so depressed in movies for years. I stopped watching movies <laughs> about the conflict. No, I guess that's it. I'm thinking. I think that's it. Yeah. So thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thank you, Louis, for sharing all of that with us. Your personal story, your academic work. And I want to also thank our listeners for tuning in. Hopefully we'll have a new episode for you coming uh, in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.